I should like to begin a course of studies with you tonight in that section of Old Testament history covered by Ezra, Nehemiah and Esther. And uh, I want to focus attention this evening on the first uh, two and a half chapters of the book of Ezra. And uh, perhaps if you keep your Bibles open we will refer to one or two verses in uh, these chapters. As you know the books of Joshua through to the second book of Chronicles cover the history of the Jewish nation after their settlement in Canaan. And uh, we know from these books that after the death of Solomon, Israel as a nation was split up into two kingdoms. The kingdom comprising the ten tribes known as Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And after repeated warnings from God through prophets such as Isaiah, Micah, Sephaniah, Habakkuk and Hosea, after repeated warnings from God through these prophets to both nations, they were brought ultimately into the captivity, threatened because of their ungodliness and their idolatry. Israel into the captivity of Assyria and Judah into the captivity of Babylon. And during that period of exile, or perhaps just to put it in its context, immediately prior to the to the exile, to that captivity, you have the time of the prophet Jeremiah. And then in the time of the exile itself, you have the prophets uh, Ezekiel and Daniel. Judah was taken captive into Babylon. And it was the policy of the Babylonian empire to deport those people conquered by them to a Babylon. And uh, after 20 or 30 years the Babylonian empire itself was overthrown by the Persian empire. And one of the first acts of the king of Persia, Cyrus, was to offer to expatriate the, expatriate the exiles, the exiled peoples in Babylon to their own uh, countries to reinstate them in their country so that they would reinstate their own national religion and among those who benefited from this change of policy were the Jews you have that and for those of you who are interested the last two verses of 2nd Chronicles 
are exactly the same as the first two verses of the book of Ezra. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him an house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. <clears throat> now, from that time, the time that Cyrus, king of Persia, who had now, the nation that had now overthrown Babylon and had, and, and had the balance of power in their own hands in the then known world, from the time that Cyrus made that decree, you have the period of history, the last period of Old Testament history, covered by Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther as the historical portions of that history, and the spiritual side of it covered by Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And perhaps as a generalization might be said that if you want to understand the last three prophecies in the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, read them against the historical background that you have in Ezra, Nehemiah particularly, and Esther. Well, it is to that period of Old Testament history that I would like to turn with you and witness nights now, hopefully, until the end of the year. Now, the, book of, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah describe the three stages of the return of the Jews from the exile in Babylon, which had now become Persia, their return to Jerusalem. The first six chapters of this book are taken up with the return of the main party under Serubabel and Joshua. Serubabel the ecclesiastical leader and Joshua the priest, both of whom are often referred to in the book of the prophet Zechariah. And then from chapter 7 to the end of this book, you have the account of the second party under Ezra himself this was about 50 years after the return of the first party under Serubabel and Joshua and it was probably in between these two periods sometime within that 50 year period that you have the history that is referred to in the book of Esther it is probably within that 50 year period between the return of the first main party and the return of the second one under Ezra and then about 20 years after that again you have the return of the third main party under the leadership of Nehemiah now I'm going to look with you tonight we're going to look together at the return of the first main party as this is brought before us in the 
first three chapters of this book and I want to look at two themes in particular that this book uh, indicates so very clearly first of all the unfolding purpose of God and secondly and more particularly the way in which these people went about rebuilding the ruins of Jerusalem now we read here that there were about 42,000 who returned initially uh, with Zerubbabel and Joshua to Jerusalem when uh, Cyrus issued his decree and uh, as you look at the unfolding purpose of God you cannot but look at this very important figure in the Old Testament this man Cyrus king of Persia he was the most important secular leader of his day and he was raised up by God to break the power of Babylon and thereby to change the balance of power in the known world at that time and this may help you to understand two very important chapters in the prophecy of Isaiah we haven't got time to read them here tonight I wish we had you can read them when you get home chapters 44 and 45 in the prophecy of Isaiah and there again you have God speaking many many years before this event speaking through his prophet Isaiah and telling his people that he was going to raise up Cyrus who would be his servant his shepherd to do his will towards his own people now the great question arises is this how could a heathen king like Cyrus know as he refers to it here at the beginning of this book if you uh, read the uh, verse 2 of chapter 1 the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kings of the earth and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem which is in Judah who is there of you among you of all his people as God be with him let him go up to Jerusalem which is in Judah and build the house of the Lord God of Israel he is the God which is in Jerusalem now how could a heathen king such as Cyrus come to know the revealed will of the God of Israel of course we don't really know the answer to that question but there are one or two interesting points that are made by many and I just mentioned them in the passing we cannot for example forget the life the influence of a, the life and the witness and the prayers of men like Daniel and Ezekiel and many others with them during these years of captivity who were genuine believers in the God of Israel and who like the young maiden in Naaman's household witnessed to the power and to the majesty and to the glory and to the grace of the God of Israel we don't know what place such a witness would have had in the life of a man such as Cyrus we don't know and in this connection it might encourage each one of us 
to witness, no matter where we are, or no matter how feeble, how weak we may feel our witness to be. There are many of us who feel our own hopeless inadequacy in many situations. Perhaps you feel your own uselessness and your own hopelessness. And you wish that you could witness better, could say more, could do more. Well, we are never to give up, never to shirk our responsibilities, nor are we to abandon the privileges and the opportunities that are given to us day by day. You never know how God may use your own feeble witness to bless that to somebody else. You never know. But in connection with Cyrus, the important thing is this, that this man, as the Bible tells us, as Isaiah tells us, was anointed by God, referred to as the shepherd of God. Now, you are not thereby warranted to conclude that Cyrus was a believer. God can anoint, and this is the very often the meaning of the word anoint in the Bible, God can use anybody to fulfill his purpose for him. God can employ anyone as his shepherd. That is the person who is going to do God's will. You see, you don't necessarily need to love the will of God yourself to do the will of God. God can move you to do his will and thereby to fulfill his purpose. And this is how God used Silas. He raised him up. He raised him up so that by a mysterious, by the mysterious influence of his will and his spirit, he would do all that was in accordance with the purpose and with the plan of God. And all this was within the purpose and the plan of God. The captivity of Israel and of Judah was within the plan and the purpose of God. Their release from captivity was within the plan and the purpose of God. God was behind all this. And God was using this man in the unfolding of the history of the then known world for this, for the fulfillment of his own wonderful purpose and gracious purpose towards his own people, towards his own Old Testament church. In the same way exactly as the history of this world today unfolds for two great reasons. First and foremost for the glory of God and secondly for the good of God's church in the world. You and I may not see it like that. We don't see it like that probably. We never think in terms of the fulfillment of God's purpose as world events unfold before our eyes on the television screen every day of life. We don't think of our world leaders, um, Reagan and Gorbachev. We don't think of readers of, of, of the Western world and of the Eastern Bloc as being in the hand of God and being used by God. We don't know who's being raised up by God at any particular time to fulfill his will, to do his purpose with reference 
to the Christian church and I'm sure that you would agree with me that it is seldom that you think of the unfolding of world affairs current affairs it is seldom that you think of their unfolding with reference to God's purpose for yourself as a member of the Christian church and with, God, with reference to God's purpose for the church as a whole in the world well here you have another indication of the way in which the purpose of God unfolds he brought this church the Old Testament church into captivity so that by the captivity her life and her witness by the chastisement of that captivity her life and her witness would be purged and in the interest of that church without her recognizing it he was working his work behind the scenes raising up a nation like Persia and a king like Cyrus to overthrow Babylon so that he would issue a decree within the first two years of his reign by which these people were sent by him and with his approval and with his blessing and enriched by him materially sent back to rebuild their land their temple and their city and all within the purpose of God Secondly, look now at the work to which they were called. Now, you will notice here that the children of Israel, these Jews, did not go back empty-handed. Whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, verse 4, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold, with goods and with beasts, and so on. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, you will notice that there's a parallel to this you remember there's a parallel to this in the book of Exodus when the people of Israel uh, when they um, left Egypt to go back to Canaan they were not allowed to go empty handed in chapter 12 of the book of Exodus we read that the children of Israel according to the word of Moses and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And this was a fulfillment of what God had said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Your people, he says, the people go out of Egypt and they will go out enriched by the Egyptians. And much of what went towards the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness was stuff that the children of Israel had received from the Egyptians before they ever left Egypt. Similarly here, much of what went towards the rebuilding of the altar and of the temple and ultimately of the city walls, much of it was what the Jews received from the Persian king and from the people of the country that had become known as Persia and I think that this is interesting because you see I know and I hope that there's, if there's anyone present of this religious persuasion I hope that you'll forgive me for raising this but, and if I'm wrong perhaps you'll correct me afterwards 
I think it is true to say that uh, there are people, religious persuasions such as the brethren, that uh, believe that the uh, cause of the Lord should only be supported, for example, financially by the people of the Lord. There are some people, perhaps in our own church, who feel that the only people who should subscribe to church funds are those who love the Lord. Well, of course, that is not a biblical principle. The church in the Old Testament was supported by people who were not only outside it, but who were the veritable enemies of the church. As I mentioned, look at what happened when the Jews left Egypt. Here, look at what happened when they left Persia. And it is a principle in the Bible that God will use people who are not his at all to support his own cause. And uh, indeed, God expects people who are not his at all to support his own cause in the world. That's the first point to be made up. And the other point to notice is this in this first chapter that everyone, the decree was um, extended to, the offer was extended to all the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. Now many of them did not avail themselves of the opportunity. <coughs> Similar situation that you have today and you've had it for years since 1948 wasn't it that Israel was made a nation and the privilege given, the opportunity given to every Jew to return to Israel and many, many Israel, Jews go back to Israel but many many do not go back for their own particular reasons politically they do not go back they stay in Britain in the States in South Africa and many places they don't avail themselves of the opportunity today as the Jews then didn't avail themselves of the opportunity only 40 or thousand of them went back at that time but they uh, there is something else to notice in connection with that. Perhaps there is an application to be made about it spiritually. That, uh, and perhaps in the next few weeks, you yourselves may be put on the spot in connection with this. That uh, when the offer is extended to the Christian church to uh, help in particular directions, it's amazing how few people take up the offer I am inundated from times if I may use the word with people who criticize me and my likes for not doing this and not doing that and not doing the next thing and yet I don't know there's anything that is more depressing upon the human spirit than the attempts that we try to do to uh, try to make you do certain things and you receive so little in the way of encouragement there's that spiritual application to be made of it. God has a work, a niche, a role for each one of us in, his, in the unfolding of his own purpose within the church in the world. And he lays his finger on each single one of us. And there are many of us who opt out, who refuse to accept the invitation addressed to us it's not an invitation, it's a command it is an invitation from Cyrus but many of them refuse to take it and there is that spiritual application that could be made I think with some force and purpose perhaps even in your own life tonight well 
for those 42,000 who went back they set to work and they did two things and these are the only things I'm going to mention tonight the two things that chapter 2 tells us that they did first of all they built the altar of burnt offering and then they observed the feast of tabernacles now <clears throat> this was uh, let, me, let me put it let, let me show you just tell you the three stages that you have in Ezra and Nehemiah when they began to rebuild Jerusalem the first thing they rebuilt was the altar of burnt offering then they went on to rebuild the rest of the temple furniture together with the temple itself when all that was finished under Nehemiah they built the city walls to protect the temple now then here's the question why begin with the altar of burnt offering why begin there well for this reason that you must begin at the most important point of all and the altar of burnt offering was the central point of importance in the worship of Israel in the worship of the Jew worship temple worship was meaningless without the altar of burnt offering it was at the very heart at the very center of their religious life so they begin at the very center they begin with the most important thing of all they begin within and then they begin as well to work from within outwards outwards and this is what it is with the Christian church this is how it is you must begin within and you must begin with yourself and you must begin in the inner man inside yourself in your soul in your own relationship with God you begin there and from there it emanates out to the rest that's how it begins and that's where it begins it's the same with revival in the church it begins within the church and works its way out from the church and this is why even though there may be people here who will disagree with me on this this is why one has to for example speak about the evangelistic service we held we hold here in Lewis year after year that's what is known as what is known as the Ordin Picker these services which were which were born as it were from within the Christian church at a time of rich spiritual blessing and, 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 and revival they were the product of the church from within and went to those without and the church I believe uh, has not benefited over the years by, by, by retaining what began in that way when she herself had lost the life and the vitality and the vigour that had given birth to these things and they are now as it were on the outside without being a part really of the inner life of the church at all you begin within that's only an aside you begin within you begin as it were with yourself now the altar of burnt offering as I said was important it was a place as you know and I just rush over this it was a place where the slain victims were offered to God it was made of earth it was like a mound of earth the altar of burnt offering like a mound of huge mound of earth and it had four pillars or horns 
strong horns. They had to be strong because to these horns very often the victims which were taken to be slain were tied. And that's why you have the references you have in Psalm 118. Bind ye unto the altar's horns with cords the sacrifice. They were bound to the horns of the altar, these as it were huge corner posts. And there was a platform, a raised platform, on which the priests stood as they ministered, offered the offerings on the altar of burnt offering. And the, the altar was fed unceasingly with the, 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 with the sacrifice of life which was consumed by a never dying fire underneath. And it was the most important of the temple furniture. Without it, nothing could be done spiritually. It symbolized the meeting place between God and the sinner. And it showed the sinner God's appointed way of meeting him by sacrifice, by blood, by offering. And it was to the, to the, to the, to the person who came a constant reminder of his sin. And of the punishment that his sin de de demanded. And of the ground of his acceptance through the death of a substitute in the presence of God. It was therefore the meeting place between God and man. The place where man had showed that he had fellowship with God. Anyone who was, anyone by the way, who had no fellowship with God, whose life was so tainted by willful sin... He couldn't come to the altar of burnt offering until that sin had first of all been atoned for. It was only the man who stood in fellowship with God who was allowed to come to the altar of burnt offering. And there he consecrated himself anew to the service and to the worship of God. There he received the consolation of the friendship and the fellowship of God into his own soul. And there he received acceptance before God on the basis of his own sacrifice. And that was the altar that these people, that's what this what these people did first of all. They repaired, they rebuilt, and they restored, and they reestablished the altar of burnt offering to the Lord. And that is where you and I have to begin. In a relationship with God at the personal level, before we do anything else, we have to restore, repair, re-establish what may have broken down in the life. That at which the fellowship has been broken. We've got to get it right. And we've got to get that relationship sorted out. First and foremost, we begin with the altar at personal level. For those of you who are head of families, you begin with the altar at your family life, at the level of your family life. We begin with the altar at the level of congregational life. Because if that's wrong, everything is wrong. Everything is wrong. And I wonder, as I listen, for example, to our own praise in the sanctuary, here and in the church building, when there seems to be so much apathy prevailing, when people are almost afraid to open their mouths, afraid to sing out to the Lord, why? Is there something wrong? 
in our relationship with God. Have we got nothing to sing about? Oh yes, we've got to start right in there. Right in there. At every single level of your relationship with the Lord, begin there. Begin within. Repair the brokenness in your life. Restore the fallenness. Reconstitute, rededicate. And reconsecrate yourself anew to the Lord. This is what Jacob had to do. He had to build the altar at Bethel. Rebuild it. This is what Elijah had to do. He had to rebuild the altar of Israel and Carmel. This is what Samuel had to do. He had also to rebuild the altar at Ramah. And there are many times when you and I have to rebuild the altar. And all the religious doing and throwing. And all the activity in our lives. I wonder if deep down and right inside. Has that altar been repaired? Have these things been put right? I read a quotation the other day and I give it to you because well worth giving. To worship, said this man, is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. To feed the mind with the truth of God. To purge the imagination with the beauty of God. To open the heart to the love of God. And to devote the will to the purpose of God. That is rebuilding the altar. Oh, for that relationship to get it right. To go back to Bethel. And to sort things out. That's where they began. And then finally, we read in verse 4 of chapter 3. After they had done this, they kept the feast of tabernacles. Now these were the two things that they did first of all. They rebuilt the altar of burnt offering and then they kept the feast of tabernacles. Now then, and just listen a word. The feast of tabernacles was the longest feast in Israel. It lasted for eight days, from one Sabbath to another. And it was the last feast of the year. And it took place after the Day of Atonement. And what it was really was, it reminded Israel of their 40 years journey through the wilderness. And what they did was this, for eight days, they lived in tents, booths, similar to the ones in which they lived when they were in the wilderness for eight days and they worshipped the Lord and in the course of time two things were associated with that feast which spelt out something of the joy of it the ritual the first thing was is that a certain ritual was observed on the last day of the feast water was drawn from the pool of Siloam in a golden pitcher and poured onto the altar of burnt offering by the priest and as he did this it was accompanied by congregational singing you have references in Isaiah chapter 12 you shall draw water you shall draw with joy water from the wells of salvation this is what happened 
recorded in John chapter 7 when Jesus on the last day of the feast said if any man thirst let him come unto me and drink you see it was after he had seen this being done and was associated with water associated with joy and then the other ritual was that one of the temple courts was lit brightly and permanently and that is the reference that you have to the saying of Jesus in John chapter 8 I am the light of the world now then these people after 70 years captivity 42,000 of them for the first time in many a long day held the feast of tabernacles now they didn't hold it fully we know from the book of Nehemiah that was about 50 years after this before Jerusalem as a city really thoroughly observed the feast of tabernacles but they observed at least in a measure and it reminded them remember of the journey of, of what God had done for their forefathers in bringing them back to in bringing them into Canaan after 40 years wandering in the wilderness but notice this why should they keep the feast of tabernacles what was the significance of it for them this of course here now were a people who could enter meaningfully into a remembrance of what God had done for them it wasn't just that God had brought their fathers through the wilderness into Canaan God had brought them from captivity back to Jerusalem and this is part of the worship of the Christian church it's a meaningful exercise for the worshipper what's he doing? he's lifting his heart in joyfulness in thankfulness to a God who has brought him back from the captivity of sin into the liberty, the glorious liberty of the people of God he can worship God now as one who has been delivered been freed by himself he can say that God not only brought back Israel but he has brought him back the Lord did great things for Israel as we sang here tonight but he's done great things for us this is the testimony of the Christian of the Christian church God has she has been released redeemed, delivered by the power of God enabled to rededicate her life to himself and can therefore worship in a meaningful in a personal way and can say the Lord has brought me into this place can you say that tonight and is the Lord reminding you that you have to renew your own commitment to him that you are to rejoice within the circle which is the church of God where life fellowship ought to abide wouldn't it be good if you and I could begin with ourselves tonight could begin with our own heart in our own relationship to God wouldn't that be good so that from us from within the life 
that he has communicated to us would then funnel its way through into the life and the witness and the fellowship of others. They began with the altar. They worshipped him in a feast of remembrance, thankfully. And then they went on to build the temple of the Lord. Not without opposition, as we shall see. But they had the resolve and the willingness to work in his name. Let us pray. Our Lord, we bless thee for thy care for thy provision. For the fact that thy purposes are unfolding and that thy will will not be thwarted. Forgive us for not being what we ought to be in the service of God. And help us, we pray thee, to uh, apply ourselves to the tasks that thou hast given to us in life. Forgive us if our relationship with thee is not what it ought to be. Give us grace, O Lord, to set that right in dependence upon thine own grace. Lay thy hand upon us this night. Bless us in our fellowship and go before us, helping us and all whom we commit to thee in all our ways to acknowledge thyself forgiving sin for Jesus' sake. Amen. <clears throat>